But then every season that we enter into as in the life of the church, whether it's Christmas or Easter or stewardship season, whatnot, that the gospel will speak to where we are. And probably more than any time in the past two years, I have felt very challenged by where we are, and it's Christmas. And yesterday, we were on um, the beginning of a thought unit in the Gospel of Luke called the Six Woes. And it's the six woes to these religious leaders. And Jesus basically just opens a can on them, and uh, it's not pretty. And in, in, in the text from yesterday, you know, he said, woe to you, Pharisees. Uh, he actually called them like empty graves. That's it, just not a nice thing to say. And so there's another group of people who are in the room with him. He's at a dinner, and he's been invited by these Pharisees and, and lawyers to, uh, to be at dinner. They're going to scrutinize him. And there's this other group of people who are there. And, and they're even considered smarter than, than the Pharisees, who Jesus has kind of been dressing down here. They're called the, the lawyers or experts in the law or scribes. And, uh, and they respond to him. And this is what verse comes next. It's Luke 11, verse 45. I'll have you stand for the reading of God's word, but we're going to read one, one verse. And it's not going to make any sense to you at all. Let's read together. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Thank you very much. Please be seated. So this past week, I'm sitting at my desk in my office, and uh, an email pops up. And I don't typically pay attention, but this one kind of flashed. You know how it flashes on your screen for a moment, and then it flashes away? And I looked down briefly, and it said the title of the email was Winter Parties. And it was from the principal in my kids' elementary school sending an email to all of the parents instructing them of where to go, where to sign in, where to get a visitor's badge if they plan on attending the kids' winter parties last week. Winter parties, really. So our kids are taking time away from their studies. They're exchanging little gifts. They're eating cookies, singing songs, throwing a party because the winter solstice is upon us. It's turned cold, and the wind is howling outside, and that's good reason to throw a party, right? Of course not. We, we don't recognize Winter Day as a national holiday. We recognize Christmas Day. We don't say Merry Winter to people. We say Merry Christmas. But now in, in 2012 into 2013, our public schools call these merry celebrations winter parties. Why? Because we don't want to offend anybody if we were to call them Christmas parties, right? Now, right now you think you know where I'm going with the sermon, but you don't. (laughs) Because you think that I'm going to start railing on, you know, the Muslim families and the Hindu families and the Buddhist families who are all in that, you know, terribly small minority that go to my kids' school and say, you all just get over it. You know, we're Americans and we celebrate Christmas and Christmas is awesome and nobody should be offended by Christmas, Right? wrong. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shock you out of your boots tonight because I'm going to tell you that everyone in our culture should be offended by Christmas. Everyone. Christmas should leave no soul unoffended, at least at first. Now, why, why would I say that? I'm going to tell you why. There are three things. First, what Christmas claims. Second, what Jesus says. And third, what Christmas means for you and for me and for the whole world. First, we should all be offended by what Christmas claims. I mean, think about it. What is the essence of the Christmas story that is pronounced by an angel to a bunch of stinky shepherds according to the story of Christmas? Here in Luke 2.10 we read, but the angel said to them, 
Do not be afraid. I bring you good news, a great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, how is this offensive? Well, first of all, let's assume that these shepherds are postmodern shepherds. Let, let, let's assume that they think like most people in our culture think. Let's put ourselves in their sandals. And, and guys, let's assume that these are not the most religious people in the, in the village, right? I mean, the, these guys fight off wolves and lions for a living. They make their home under the stars, and they are generally the kind of men who avoid religious people and environments. And that certainly was the case back then. So, so putting ourselves in the positions of these shepherds and keeping our postmodern mindset, how do we hear the story of Christmas? First, the story of Christmas claims that there are angels, that there is a spiritual realm that has spiritual activity going on that we cannot see where spiritual beings exist and serve as messengers of God, and that God exists in the same spiritual realm that we cannot see. Then we're supposed to believe that these spiritual agents of God can appear out of thin air, and that whenever they do, they say something really kind of crazy like, do not be afraid. I mean, yeah, as though any of us would not be afraid if one of those things popped out in our backyard tonight, right? But that's what we're supposed to believe. And the angel has... Good news. He says, good news of great joy. Now, where does this news come from? It doesn't come from our world. It comes from a different world. This angel is supposedly giving us information that we could not intuitively know or discover in our own world. No matter how hard we look, no matter how hard we studied, we would never be able to get this bit of news from our world. It has to come from outside of our world. And, and this news is supposed to be great joy for all the people. As though anyone of these angelic beings could understand what would bring great joy to all people. And, and as far as we're concerned, we're not sure that all people deserve good news of great joy. Some people are bad people. They're the kind of people we love to hate. We could get pretty excited about great joy coming to all the right people, but great joy for all the people? What about those people who don't deserve good news or great joy? That doesn't seem fair. And what exactly is this good news of great joy for all the people? A savior has been born to us? So what you're saying is that I need a savior? A savior from what? I don't need a savior. I don't need saving. The angel tells Joseph, who's engaged to marry the mother of Jesus, that this child will save his people from their sins. What sins? I haven't done anything wrong. I do what feels right for me. I respect other people's right to do what feels right for them. I don't need saving. In fact, I don't need anything that I don't already have. You're assuming I need a savior, but what if I don't need a savior? Then this is not really good news, and I don't see how it's going to bring me any great joy. The whole concept is patronizing and offensive, right? It's like when someone swoops in at work and says, hey, good news, we're calling in the professional consultant who's going to come in and clean up your mess and rescue this project. And all the time you thought you were just killing this project. You said, you, you just keep your consultant. Just keep your savior. If I need one, I'll let you know. So this angel says, a savior has been born to us. And it's supposedly good news of great joy for who? For the whole world? So the whole world needs a savior, and this one guy is going to be the savior for everybody, even the bad guys, even our enemies, even the most disgusting offensive people who just happen to live two doors down from me? That's not true. I just, it's an illustration, in case, <laughs> in case you know those people, just saying. I mean, that's not right. If, if anyone deserves a savior, it's the good people who have been mistreated by the bad people. But you're telling me that this one savior is the savior of all people. Well, that's just offensive. 
But assuming for a moment this message from the angel is true, or at least interesting, this savior dude must be a stud, right? I mean, he's like 10 feet tall, super strong, super smart, super good looking, super connected, super powers that subdue all the bad guys and he gets all the girls, right? So where can we check this guy out? Well, you will find him wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Oh, what? He's a baby? Are you kidding me? And he's where? In a food trough? So what you're telling me that the good news of great joy for all the people is a savior, but this savior is a baby lying in a cow's food trough. Seriously. That's just offensive. But it gets worse. The baby grows into a man, and he begins to say things about himself, and he says really offensive things. He claims to have existed before the world began. He refers to God as his father and calls God my father, and sometimes referred to God as Papa. He, he says that he was sent into the world by his father and that everything he says comes straight from God. He says that everything that belongs to God belongs to him. In fact, Jesus states that the only person who actually knows God is him. He says that he is one with the Father, which is to equate himself as somehow equal to God, or even worse, to somehow suggest that he is God. He says that whoever has seen him has seen God. That's crazy, right? And this Jesus is so convinced that he's God's son that he demands a love and loyalty from his followers that takes precedence over love and loyalty of parents, children, possessions, and even life itself. According to the New Testament, if people didn't virtually walk away from everything else, they could not be considered followers of this man, Jesus. He expected people to suffer insults, persecution, slander, and even death for his agenda and his name. He claimed to be the only Lord, and he would not share that title with anyone or bow before any other king or authority. In fact, he claimed to be the king, but he claimed that his kingdom was not of this world. He claimed that one day, all the nations, everybody, would stand before his throne and would be judged. He said he would separate one from the other just as a shepherd, a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That some of us will go to heaven and some of us won't. He claimed that there would be those who desired entry into the kingdom, but they would be denied because he never knew them while they walked the earth. He said that his kingdom belonged to little children and people who became small like little children. He said no one could enter his kingdom unless he'd been born again. He talked about his church that was essentially his bride, and this church would be known by his name. And oh boy, did this guy love his name. According to Jesus, people could be healed of sickness, demons would be cast out, and the dead could be raised in his name. If God was going to answer your prayers, the prayers had to be presented in his name. His followers insisted that there was only one name by which anyone could be saved, and it was his name, the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus constantly referred to himself as the Son of Man, which meant he was pointing himself you know, pointing back to himself as the fulfillment of these prophecies that had come hundreds and hundreds of years before his birth, as though somehow all of history was anticipating his arrival. That's just a little arrogant, don't you think? I mean, to make matters even more offensive, Jesus clearly defined himself as the only way to God and to heaven. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He said, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am living bread comes down from heaven. I am from above. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the door. I am the son of God. I am the resurrection of life. I am the true vine. Whoever believes in me will never die but have eternal life. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus claimed to have ridiculous power and authority. He claimed to have the authority to forgive sins. Not just sins that we commit against him, but sins that we commit against others, and sins that others commit against me. 
So let me get this right. Somebody steals my car, and Jesus will forgive them even if I don't? That's wrong. That's just offensive. Not only did Jesus claim to have the authority to forgive sins, he claimed to have authority over wind and waves and death and demons and everything. He literally said, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Who does this guy think he is? God? Beyond saying offensive things about himself, Jesus says offensive things that hurt other people's feelings. He says if people hear his teaching but don't put them into practice, they're like people who build their houses on sand, and when the storm comes, their houses will be totally destroyed. When a guy offers to follow Jesus, but he says, I have to go bury my father first, Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go proclaim the kingdom of God. That's offensive. He talks to the people around him and says things like, you are a wicked generation, or oh, unbelieving and perverse generation. He predicts doom and gloom upon entire cities like Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. He acts like he knows everything, and he redefines sin in a way that makes it impossible for us to come out looking like good people. He says that if we even lust over another person in our own heart, it's the same as committing adultery. That if we hold anger in our hearts towards another person, God counts that the same as murder. Then he teaches his followers to do the craziest things, like love your enemies, pray for your enemies, do good to those who persecute you, lend to those without expecting any kind of repayment. If someone strikes you on one cheek, let them take a shot at the other. That's offensive. Nobody actually lives like that, right? And then, as we've seen in the 11th chapter of Luke, if you were with us yesterday, Jesus starts woeing the very best religious people in town. He says, woe to you Pharisees, and he accuses them of being shallow, superficial, and hypocritical, just because why? because they believe in a different way than he does. Because Jesus has his way and they have their way. What makes them so sure that he's the only one who has this whole thing figured out? So the scribes from 2,000 years ago, they represent us very well, don't they? They represent our postmodern society, our critical thought. When, when they say, Rabbi, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us. I mean, let's face it, when Jesus says the things that he says, when we consider these claims of Christmas, we're insulted, right? We're, we're offended, right? Why? Because like the Pharisees and the scribes in the ancient world, most of us are pretty convinced that we're good people. We're intelligent people. We're reasonable people. We're generally nice people, and we deserve a little bit more respect than Jesus is giving us. We can discover truth for ourselves. We don't need some revelation from heaven. We can handle our enemies the old-fashioned way through war and revenge. We don't need a stinking advice that sounds like foolishness. I mean, nobody's perfect, but we're certainly not the bad guys, right? We're not the ones walking into schools slaughtering innocent children. Jesus needs to go pick on those people, not us. And by the way, you know, if Jesus has any interest in saving jerks like that, I mean, we have no use for him, right? And why does Jesus persist and insist on pointing out our little sins when there are people in the world who commit such terrible sins. I mean, how can you put me and my relatively good life in the same boat as militant Muslims who blow people up or Nazi Germany? Surely God will honor some kind of sliding scale when it comes to determining good people from bad people. Surely God would not put all of his eggs in one basket when it comes to this whole salvation thing. Surely there are ways to get to heaven other than through this one singular man. I mean, the Jewish peasant carpenter from Nazareth who lived some 2,000 years ago. Surely, there has to be a master plan that takes into consideration all the other religions and all the other claims of truth and allows those people into heaven if they have been good people. Jesus, when you say the things that you say, you insult us. Some people may need to hear what you're saying, not us. We're the good guys. That is exactly what the scribes just said. 
in chapter 11, verse 45. We're the good guys. He's up. Don't insult us. Don't hurt our feelings. Quit offending us. We're offended by what Christmas claims. We're offended by what Jesus said. And we're offended by what Christmas means. Because if Christmas is true, and Jesus is the one and only Savior of the world, if what Jesus said about himself and us is right, if Jesus did actually rise from the dead on the third day, as attested to by multiple witnesses who were willing to go to their death simply to say that Jesus was not dead, that he had risen, well, then it doesn't really matter how we feel, does it? It's checkmate. Christmas then means that we all need a Savior. It means that there's no competing atonement that satisfies God's justice and allows people to get to heaven. There's no other name by which we might be saved. There's no other champion born into us. There's only Jesus Christ, the Savior of all men and women, the only King of kings and Lord of lords. And Christmas thus celebrates the Savior, and he alone is the good news that brings joy for all the people. By the way, there's no other person in history who claimed to be the Savior of the world in the atonement for human sins. There's no, there's no one else who the prophets foretold would come to save us. It's, it's just Jesus. If Christmas is true... Jesus Christ is actually the only way, the only truth, and the only life, the only access to the Father. If Christmas is true, it means that any religion that doesn't proclaim Jesus as Lord is wrong. I mean, make no mistake, Christmas means that it's only by the name of Jesus that we can be healed, delivered, set free, forgiven, and reconciled to God. It's only his name that chases away the darkness and brings hope to the hopeless. Only Jesus. And in a pluralistic culture, where it is commonly held that nothing is actually true, it stands to reason that Jesus Christ is incredibly offensive, as are his followers. Christmas, the celebration of Christ's birth, is offensive. The whole concept doesn't seem fair or inclusive or very considerate of opposing views at all. And that is exactly why our culture now says winter parties instead of Christmas parties. That's exactly why just about everybody in our culture should be offended by Christmas at first, anyways. And I say at first because all of the offensiveness about Christianity and Christmas is only offensive if we are certain that it's not true. All of the offensiveness that we just heard, it's only offensive if we're certain that it's not true. I mean, if we're sure that it's not true, if we can prove that it's not true, then nothing in the whole world could ever be more offensive than Christmas and the ensuing claims of Christ and his followers. However, if Christianity is true, if there actually is a heaven and a hell, if we're actually personal spiritual beings who go on forever, if we do actually have a spiritual enemy who lies to us and encourages us to rebel against God, if there is actually a standard of holiness and justice that we have failed to uphold, if we are actually accountable to our creator, if we're all guilty of sin and incapable of restoring what we owe God, if we will actually be judged by our thoughts, our attitudes, our lust, our intentions, as well as our behavior, if our neglect, our neglect to show mercy and compassion and generosity will count just as much against us as our cheating and our lying. I mean, if all the other religions happen to be wrong and there is no other path to be forgiven and reconciled to God, if Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead and those witnesses were telling the truth, well then, you see, Christmas wouldn't be offensive at all, would it? What, what, what would it be? It would be good news of great joy. Great joy. 
to everyone. And this savior would not just be the savior of good people because there are no good people according to God's standards. There are just sinners in need of forgiveness and all are welcome who will repent and call upon the name of Jesus. There's no prerequisite religious right or initiation. There's no privilege associated with race, tribe, heritage, wealth, good looks, success, or competence. All are welcome to come as they are. All are invited to receive forgiveness and serve the king. And what's even more amazing is that our choosing to kneel before Jesus will not earn his love. He loves us long before we kneel. He dies for us while we are yet his enemies. So we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no achievement acknowledged or required. It means that we're loved, thought about, created, sustained, redeemed, and we get to go home to be with our Father when we finish here on earth. That's what Christmas means, if it just so happens to be true. Interestingly, for thousands of years, millions of people on every continent have found Christmas to be a great source of joy and hope. Millions and millions of people for 2,000 years have given honor, worship, and praise to the God-man, Jesus Christ, bearing testimony that he saved them, that he healed them, that he delivered them from darkness, that he actually spoke to them, that he revealed himself to them, that he comforts them. Even on this very day, thousands of Muslims in Iran and all over the Islamic world are converting to Christianity. Why? Because according to their own written testimonies, Jesus came to them in a dream and said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Follow me. And this before they ever heard or read a single word of the New Testament. That's not my words. Those are their words. And there are hundreds of these testimonies being shared, published, and even posted on YouTube every day. And these Muslim converts to Christianity make these confessions of faith at the risk of persecution or even execution. But maybe they're lying. I mean, maybe Jesus was lying. Maybe millions of people for the past 2,000 years have been lying. Maybe I'm lying for that matter. Maybe those experts in the law really were that much smarter than Jesus. Maybe you're really that smart too. I mean, maybe you really are that good of a person that you don't need forgiveness. Maybe you really are in a position to critique Jesus because you have studied hard and you intuitively know what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false, what can be trusted and what cannot be trusted. I mean, maybe you can grasp the unfathomable mysteries of our origin, our purpose, our common moral code, our preoccupation with redemption and what happens when we die. Maybe you can grasp all of those mysteries without any revelation from the spiritual realm. If that's your situation, well, then I don't blame you for being insulted by Jesus or offended by my message. I would feel the same way if I were you. And clearly there have been many, and there remain many, who are insulted by Jesus. They are offended by Christmas. And so we say happy holidays and invite people to winter parties. But tonight, on this Christmas Eve, I suspect within every one of us we might find a still small voice whispering, but what if it's true? What if it's exactly like Jesus said. What if Jesus really is the savior of the world? What if God really does love us so much that he would stand by and allow his own son to be slaughtered by us so that his innocent blood would achieve our salvation? What if God really did plunge into our darkness, do battle with our enemy so that he could lift us out of the evil we know exists and deliver us into his realm where there is no more pain, no more tears, no more school shootings. No more death. That's what Christmas means. That may offend you at first. It probably should. 
But then, what if it's true? What if there is actually good news of great joy for all people in these dark days? I believe there is. Will you pray with me? God, it's good to know that we're not the first group of people who have been offended by your words and the claims of the gospel. That the ancients were no more likely to believe these fantastic claims than we were. But then there was the empty tomb. And there were these many, many witnesses who said, we saw him, he's alive, and it validated everything you said. It's not something we see every day. It's not normal. It's abnormal. It's supernatural. It's the center of history. It defines everything that has come since. It redefines everything that came before. And if it's true, then it's a game changer. It's not just a bit of interesting information. It defines our our hope. It defines what we can cling on to in the face of the, the shadow of death. It is a light in the darkness, a light like no other. And it is a light that you sent into the darkness because you love us. You love us so much you take our own darkness upon you and you redeem it, that that light may not just be a bit of information that we admire, but it might live and dwell within each and every one of us. Jesus Christ is that light, and we celebrate his birth tonight.